Genesis chapter 2. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and heaven. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. But a mist used to rise from the earth and water the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It flows around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good, and the bdellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It flows around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, and it flows east of Assyria. <clears throat> and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took from his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, last week we looked at uh, beginning in verse 4 and down through uh, about verse 15. So by way of review, what do you remember that we talked about last week? This was the second beginning. There weren't two beginnings. Okay, so there are not two accounts of creation that contradict each other. Is, is the point we were trying to make. This is the uh, this uh, verse. Verse four begins the beginning of the first what? What do we call it? Holodot. Okay, the first account or the first generations. There are ten of these in Genesis, and this is the first one. So if you want to think of the structure of Genesis, 
as we talked about last week. Chapter one, verses one, chapter one, verse one through chapter two, verse three, is the prologue or the introduction. Okay, and then beginning in chapter two, verse four, we have the first of the ten Taladots beginning, and those are like the chapters of a book. So the first chapter and the first three verses of the second chapter are like the introduction, and then beginning in chapter two, verse four, we have chapter one, and then. Later on, we'll have chapter 2, uh, not the chapters as they're divided here, but the Taladots, okay? The word Taladot simply meaning the account or the generations, okay? What else? There were two essential components uh, in the creation of man. Okay. Uh, the dust. Okay. And you mentioned that that talks about the kind of humility, mm-hmm. humility where we came from. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we have both aspects in man, don't we? We have the humility, he's from the earth, but we also have the glory, that he has the breath of God in him. And both of those elements are present in the creation of man, and it makes him distinct from all the rest of creation. What else? Obviously, in the flood, there's all kinds of upheavals and all kinds of stuff went on. Uh, the rivers don't flow the way they did before the flood. And so, so the description here really makes no sense to us. Uh, uh, obviously, there still is a Tigris and there is a Euphrates River, but the rest of these descriptions we don't, we don't understand. And even they don't come from the same headwaters as they obviously did at this point in history. Uh, so, uh, so we can't really pin down its location. So why... Since this was presumably written down for us by Moses while he's in while he's in the wilderness with the children of Israel, which is obviously many, 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 many years after the fall, why does the writer of why does Moses record this geographical data for us? What's the point if it's not going to help us figure out where it is? To show that it was a real place. Okay, yeah. To remind us that the Garden of Eden was a real place. It really existed in time and space. Okay. That is imperative to us to understand. To recognize the reality of the garden and to recognize the reality of Adam and Eve. They are not mythical figures. The Garden of Eden is not a mythical place. Adam and Eve are real people. As soon as they become myth, the fall becomes myth. And when the fall becomes myth, salvation becomes myth. And if salvation becomes myth, then the human predicament is irreversible. So it's imperative that we understand that that uh, all of this is really real stuff. Okay. What else? Anything else? Remember from last week? Uh, you talked about God preparing the garden for him, and mentioning paradise, and then placing man in the garden. It also reminded me of Christ saying, "I go to prepare a place yeah. for you," and the thief on the cross telling him, "Today you will be with me in paradise." That's great. That's great. That's a that's a good comparison. I didn't think about that, but. Yes, it's very clear that, that Adam was created somewhere else other than in the garden and then brought to and placed in the garden. We'll talk a little bit more about that today. okay? And so then we talked about that experience that Adam must have had as he's brought into this place. Creation was pretty spectacular to start with, but the garden itself is, is even far greater in its excellence and its beauty, its splendor, and its bounty. And Adam is brought from wherever else he was 
and he's brought and he's placed in this garden, which has obviously been custom designed for him. And he's brought into this and he sees this. And we talked last week about about just the pleasure that God had in creating this thing for Adam and then bringing Adam to it, to it and presenting it, uh, presenting it to Adam and presenting Adam to it. And uh, <clears throat> we talked about that. And we talked about how we sometimes we make things and we want. We want, you know, sometimes we'll make something for somebody, and then, you know, part of the pleasure we have in making it is the actual presentation. We're going to talk a lot more about that today, okay, as we go on. So, so anyway, it's just a beautiful scene of God bringing Adam into the garden, and I just, you know, I just, I like to think and and, and meditate on the on on the impact that it must have had on Adam as he's brought into the garden and he sees this beauty and this splendor and this bounty and this rest and this safety that's provided in the garden and how he must have been overwhelmed at God's love for him. Just to realize how much God cared for him in presenting to him this garden. Well, let's pick it up then again in verse 15 which is kind of where we left it off last week. And I mentioned this briefly that it says here in verse 15 that the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden. And that word put there is a different word than he uses in, in verse 8 where he says he placed the man in the garden. So, so two times he talks about putting man in the garden. But in verse 15 he uses a different word, a different Hebrew word. And this particular word is used in other places in the Old Testament. It carries... Uh, it, it carries some weight with it. It carries some significance with it that the, that the word that's used in verse 8 does not carry. Because it's a word that is used in other places in the, in the Old Testament to give, uh, uh, actually, to, uh, two ideas that it carries. One is the idea of rest. That, that something is put somewhere for the purposes of rest. Okay, So as the writer of, of uh, Genesis here, as Moses is recording this and telling us this story, uh, he's communicating the idea that the garden is to be a place of rest. Okay. And then the second idea that's carried, uh, that's, uh, that uh, the word carries, is the idea of dedication. And uh, we, we get this sometimes in other places in the Old Testament talking about what the priests would do with their garments and where they would place their garments as an act of dedication. Okay, so, so it carries this idea of rest and dedication. So it's, it's really kind of a loaded term. And we just read it and we go, well, he just stuck him in the garden. But it carries, it carries that idea that Adam is placed in the garden as a place of rest and a place that is dedicated to him and a place where he himself is dedicated to God. We talked a little bit last week about the end of that verse where it says, uh, to cultivate and to keep it, and there is uh, some question about if that's whether or not the, whether or not that's the best way to translate that. Uh, the end of that verse, uh, and Jim had brought up the question uh, last week about whether or not man cultivated uh, or participated in cultivation before the fall, because that implies <laughs> we think cultivation, we think of hard work, right? We think of toil. And, and so the question is, did man cultivate before the fall? And, and earlier in the chapter, in verse 5, he talked about how there was not man to cultivate the ground. Okay? Verse 5 does not necessarily imply that there was cultivation before the fall. Remember we said that what the writer is trying 
the narrator is trying to communicate here, he's trying to communicate people who are living many, many, many years after the fall, okay? Perhaps hundreds of years after the fall. So he's trying to communicate the, the idea that the earth was different. It wasn't always the way it is now, the way we see it now, meaning in the time when he was speaking, okay, or communicating this. So the idea is the earth they know of is an earth where there are crops that are cultivated by a farmer, by a cultivator, by man, and, and, and this whole process of growth happens because of the rain coming down on the earth. And he describes there in the early part of the chapter the fact that, that the earth wasn't always like that. We didn't always have rain. There wasn't always man on the earth to cultivate. And there weren't always cultivated crops is the idea that he's communicating there. Okay. Uh, if that's the case, we cannot read in verse 5 necessarily an implication that man cultivated before the fall. He's just simply saying sometime in the previous time, you know, long ago, things weren't the way they are now, so there wasn't man around to cultivate. He doesn't say when man began to cultivate. So I think it would be a mistake to read verse 5 as a statement that man cultivated the ground before the fall. Okay. Um, that being said, then we come down to verse 15. The question is, did he cultivate? Does verse 15 say he cultivated the garden? But the problem with verse 15 is that the pronoun it at the end of verse 15 is a different gender than the verb than the noun garden in the first part of the of the expression of the verse. Okay, so the question is, to what does it refer? And uh, and as I mentioned, uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary points this discrepancy out uh, and, and points out that possibly a better way to translate this verse would be to translate it that he was placed in the garden to worship and to obey. Okay? Uh, if that is the better translation, it to me makes sense. Uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic about it. If it is the better translation... Uh, it fits very well with the whole context of what's trying to be communicated and the whole idea of him being put there to rest and that sort of thing. Okay, So I, I tend to lean that direction, but uh, the majority of the translations translate it uh, to cultivate and to keep. It's an, it's an ancient translation. It goes all the way back to the Septuagint about 200 years before Christ. Uh, so it's, it's a very reliable and, and uh, traditional translation, the one that we have in our, in our Bibles today. So uh, if, in fact, man did cultivate before the fall, quite clearly there, was a, there is a quite clearly a distinction between the kind of labor he, he did and the labor after the fall. Very clearly, as we get in a couple of weeks, we get into Genesis 3 and we get to what people refer to as the curse. I don't totally like that word, but... Uh, what people refer to as the curse uh, where a man then will work by the sweat of his brow and he'll have to deal with the thorns. That's quite clearly uh, things have escalated <laughs> uh, in, in the results of the fall. So whatever was going on prior to the fall, it's different after the fall. Yes, John? There wouldn't have been any, there wouldn't have been any weeds or thorns. Well, there were not weeds or thorns, and that was a, that's a point too, because typically, what is cultivation? <laughs> cultivation is getting rid of the weeds and the thorns. Okay, so uh, in, in an agriculture sense today, when we talk about cultivating your crops, we talk about running the plow down between the rows of corn and getting rid of the weeds and that sort of thing. My wife grew up in Iowa on a farm, and and they grew beans, and back in those days, they didn't have. Don't, that, I didn't, didn't think, that didn't come out of the way. <laughs> but the reality is her dad didn't have all the modern technology that they have today. And so he had four kids. 
And they would spend their summers walking beans, walking down the rows of beans in the hot Iowa sun, pulling the weeds out from between the rows of beans, you know. And and to this day, she doesn't like the sun. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, beans are okay. They paid for a lot of stuff she liked. So. But at any rate, uh, uh, so there is a question there, and, and I'm not going to wrestle with that question. Clearly, man did have responsibility to have dominion and to subdue the earth. What all that involves before the fall, I, you know, I, we can speculate, but but I'm not, I'm not going to go there. Okay. Well, <clears throat> then we come to to verse 16. Man is now in the garden. And God gives him a command. This is another, another one of the kind of original mandates that is given to man. He's been commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He's been commanded to take dominion and subdue the earth. And now he's given a specific command in relationship to the trees of the garden. What are the different aspects of that command? What's the first aspect? What's the first part of the command? Okay, eat freely of any tree in the garden. Okay, folks, it's it's wide open. You've got all these trees in the garden. And I want you to feel freedom to eat of all these trees that you see around you. Okay. Except, and that brings up point part two of the commandment, which is what? Okay, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And regarding that, what is the commandment? Don't eat of it, okay? Don't eat of it, okay? We'll get to the don't touch part next week, okay? But, uh, because that's where that comes up is in uh, chapter 3. But the don't eat part is here stated quite clearly in, in, uh, in the commandment here in verse uh, 17, okay? So he's not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why is he not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, God said. Maybe I should ask, what are the consequences of eating the tree of knowledge? He'll die. He'll die. Okay. Now, you'll notice that God does not say, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because I don't want you to have the knowledge of good and evil. He just simply says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat of it, in that day, you will surely die. Now, obviously... Uh, some of this stuff uh, we're going to have to explore more next week when we get into the actual consequences and what happens uh, in the next over the next couple of weeks. So we're not going to look totally or fully, completely at this whole idea of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But I do want to think about it in some depth this morning, because I think it is important for for us to understand what's going on here. Why does God place in the garden a tree beautiful to look at? as we will see next week. Gorgeous tree to look at. Beautiful fruit. And desirable to make one wise, as Eve says. Okay? Or as the Scripture describes Eve's thinking. Desirable to make one wise. Why does God place that in the garden if He has no intention for man to eat of it? Okay? Okay, well that's clearly part of it, is to give man an opportunity to obey. But let's think this through. God puts a tree in the garden and He calls it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, commentators are pretty well agreed on this one fact. It was not a magical tree. There was nothing in the fruit that gave man the knowledge of good and evil. Okay? It wasn't that there was some special 
juice, you know. So we don't know what kind of a tree it was. Could have been an apple tree. Could have been a pear tree. Could have been a pomegranate tree. I don't know what it was. Okay, we have no idea, and really, it's not important. But there is nothing, there is nothing magical in the fruit of the tree that that gives to man or empowers man with this knowledge. Okay, the knowledge of good and evil is is placed latently in the tree by the command of God not to eat of the tree. It's when God says, do not eat of this tree, that the latent power to have the knowledge of good and evil begins to exist. Until that point, it's just another tree. When God says, don't eat of this tree, then it has the potential to give the knowledge of good and evil. Now, Commentators speak of this experience of Adam and Eve in the garden as a probation. Okay, so the idea is that Adam and Eve are in the are in the garden in in this kind of probationary period. Okay, and the idea is they are there and there exists in the garden with them this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the question is, what will be their response or their relationship to this tree? Now, the, the power to give for this tree to imbue us with the knowledge of good and evil, the power to do that is placed in the tree by the commandment of God. Okay. So again, what, what, we, what we need to understand is that there's nothing in the tree. It's not like some chemical or some juice or some, something flowing in the tree that gives knowledge. It's the commandment of God in relationship to the tree that is the thing that gives the knowledge of good and evil. Okay. So, But I refer to it as a latent power. So there's the latent power of the tree to give the knowledge of good and evil. And that latent power is placed there by the commandment of God. It's the commandment of God that makes that latent power. But the thing that actuates the power of the tree to give the knowledge of good and evil is the enticement of the serpent. It's, so, until such time as the serpent comes along, which we won't get to that part of the story till next week, until such time as the serpent comes along, the, the latent power to give, to give the knowledge of good and evil is just there in the tree, but, but mankind is not going to benefit from that. Mankind is not going to acquire this knowledge of good and evil. Because it's just like it is actually the enticement of the enticement of the serpent that actuates that power in the life of Adam and in the mind and the heart of Adam and Eve. Okay. Now the question is, why did God put the tree in the garden? Well, yeah, yeah, that's true. He, he, mankind is given free will because he, he wants man to choose freely to love him. But, but the point is what, is, what is the tree called? It's not called the tree of free will, is it? It's the knowledge of good and evil. So the issue of the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. That's the issue. 
That's the point of the tree. Now it has these other benefits. It, it, it demonstrates man's free will and, and illustrates man's free will. I don't think it gave man free will. I think he was given that in creation, but it illustrates that. Uh, it, it, uh, it gives us this opportunity to obey and that sort of thing. But the point is that in the universe that exists at this point in time, there is already evil. Right? Lucifer has already fallen. Now, we don't know exactly when the angels were created, and we don't know exactly when the fall of Lucifer occurs. But But the point is that by the time we get to this point in the story, Lucifer obviously exists, and he inhabits the serpent and comes and entices Eve. Okay? So, or however that whole thing with the serpent worked. Okay? We'll talk about that next week. But... But the point is that evil already exists in the universe. And when God places a tree in the garden and He names it the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what does that tell Adam? Okay, well, what does it imply about this universe? Okay. Okay, what didn't Adam know? He didn't know anything about evil, and so of course he didn't know anything about good in contrast to it. So the point is, is that there's evil present in the universe, but Adam, before the placement of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and his exposure to it, has no knowledge of that evil. He has no awareness of that evil. So he's just kind of blissfully just going along in paradise here, folks. Blissfully unaware that there is evil. Now, when God points out to a tree, points a tree to him and says, that tree is called the knowledge of good and evil, what does that tell Adam? There's something out there he doesn't know. Okay, there's something out there he doesn't know and it's called evil. So, here at the very beginning of the story, Adam clearly has some seed of knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't really have any idea what it is, but he just knows there's something out there that's evil. And he knows that somehow it's connected with whether or not he does what God says. Right? Because God says, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So, so Adam has this very elementary, this very primeval, if you will, awareness of evil. But he does not know evil like he needs to know evil in order to walk in the freedom and liberty of a child of God. If he's going to go through life in in the service and the worship of God in a universe in which this great, powerful evil exists, he is going to have to have a mature complete understanding of evil. In order that, he will be equipped to resist it and oppose it. Right? So, God places in the garden a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is God's intention that through the tree... Adam would come to understand good and evil and the distinction between them. Now, don't make the mistake here 
to think that what I'm saying is that God put the tree in the garden so that he would eat of it. That's not what I said. What I said was God put the tree in the garden so that Adam would come to understand the evil that is around him and be equipped to deal with it. So, remember I said that the power of the tree was actuated by the enticement of Satan. I did not say the power of the tree was actuated by them eating the fruit. The power of the tree was actuated by the enticement. What God's intention with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was, knowing full well what Satan was about, knowing that if he placed a tree in the garden and said to Adam, do not eat of it, he knew full well what Lucifer would do. Which is what? Try to get man to eat of it because God had prohibited it. <laughs> That's the nature of the law. Okay. So, so he knows what Lucifer will do. And he places the tree in the garden knowing that Lucifer will come and entice Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit. Now Adam has all that he needs to not fall for that ploy of Satan. What is it? He has the commandment. That's all he needs. He doesn't need to know what evil is. He doesn't need to know what good is. He doesn't need to understand any of that. All he needs to know is God said, don't eat of it. That's all he needs to know. And if, okay, we're speaking hypothetically here, of course, if Adam, given, fully equipped by God to deal with the enticement of the serpent, if Adam is enticed by the serpent, or Eve, either one, is enticed by the serpent to eat of the fruit, and Adam or Eve, in response to the command of God, and in love for God, and in faith to God, faith in God, resists the temptation, what happens? What does he learn? He learns about good and evil, doesn't he? He learns about it. Then he realizes that there's that there really is evil out there. And there's something out there, there's a being out there that really hates God. And there's a being out there that really resists and opposes the will of God. And he discovers that. But not only does he discover that, what is... What does the New Testament tell us? Resist the devil and what? He will flee from you. If Adam and Eve had resisted Satan in the garden, Satan would have fled. That's what the Scripture says. So they would have been then equipped not only with this fuller, deeper knowledge of good and evil, but they would have realized that in resisting, they had dominion. In resisting, they have the power over this force of evil. Okay, Now that's what God wanted us to understand about good and evil. Now when we get to the story next week, we're going to find out that it goes all screwy. Not because God didn't know it would go screwy, but it's going to go all messed up. Okay, But, but what we need to understand is that there, was a, there, were, there were two ways for man to get the knowledge of good and evil. 
one was to eat the fruit and the other was not to eat the fruit. And so my, my tendency is to think, well, the only way I could have known about good and evil was to eat the fruit. And I still think that way, don't you? I think, well, the only way for me to really know about evil is to taste it. So when temptation comes along, if I really want to understand, you know, all about evil and stuff, I just kind of yield it, and that way I understand it. Now, it is clear that God says at the end of chapter 3, He says that man is like us, he has the knowledge of good and evil. So there is some sense in which man does acquire a God-like knowledge of good and evil, but there is another sense in which our knowledge of good and evil is radically different from God's, and how is that? God's knowledge doesn't cause him to be sinful. Okay. In other words, God knows about evil, but he is not evil. But when Adam and Eve, as we will see next week, when Adam and Eve succumb to the enticement of Satan to eat of the tree, evil enters their being and their person and they become evil. And that's the difference. So when Satan said that God knows if you eat of the tree you will become like him, knowing good and evil, it's true, you will know good and evil. But it is not true we become like him. Now, there is some sense in which we have a knowledge like God's, and we'll see that, we'll get into that when we get into chapter 3. Yeah, uh, Ginger, you're thinking back there. First of all, you can know evil even though you're not a partaker of it, you're just an observer of it. Mm -hmm. And you can know terrible evil just through observation and not being a partaker of it. Yes. So Adam could have known evil through the eyes of God he had asked God about evil, he got to told him about evil. He didn't have to experience it to know evil. That's true. That's true. God chose, however, to teach him that lesson through the instrument of the tree. Not through his eating of the tree, but through his having the tree in the garden and choosing not to eat of the tree and then seeing the contrast. You know of it, but you really don't know. I've never really been addicted to drugs. I know it exists, but I don't know the death. Yeah. yeah. So you really can't know that part of it. Yes. And 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 I and I think that that, that is an important distinction. And 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 I and you know, I don't understand I don't understand fully how God knows evil, but I know one way he does not know evil. <laughs> he does not know evil in the experience of it like that. And and that is an important distinction. And he knows the heartache of evil. Oh, yeah. Yes, he knows the reality of it. He knows the power of it. Uh, he knows he knows all about it, except that he has not imbibed it in his soul as we have done. Well, then we... Are you going to talk about the tree of life? Pardon? Are you going to talk about the tree of life? No. I will say what I said last week about the tree of life. Scripture tells us very little about it. We see it here, we see it in Revelation, if it's the same tree. You know, I tend to think it is, but others might differ. Okay. Uh, all we know about the tree of life is that it, was, uh, that it was placed here in the garden and that it was apparently available to them to eat from because, it was, because the only tree that was prohibited to them was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We do know, and as we get, when we get to chapter 3, we will talk more about the tree of life because then it, then it is mentioned. So I'm just trying to talk about things as they come up. It is discussed in chapter 3, uh, the possibility of man eating of the tree of life after the state of the fall. And God obviously wants to prohibit that, and so he drives them out of the garden. Okay. 
okay, which is the reason it drives them from the garden. So we'll talk about that when we get to it. I wasn't going to talk about it today. Okay. Well, now comes the next issue. God says, the Lord God, remember we mentioned this last week, all the way through from 2 4 through the end of chapter 3, it's Yahweh Elohim. Yahweh Elohim. The Lord God, the Lord God, the Lord God. Uh, 20 times in those two chapters. Okay. So the Lord God then, it says, <coughs> said, looks at man, and he says, it is not good for man to be alone. Now, be careful. What is not good there? What is not good? Not the best situation. Okay, what's not the best situation? Adam has no help. Pardon? Adam has no help. Okay, man being alone. Okay, it's man's state at this point in the process of creation. Okay, it's not that man is not good. Okay, so it's not that God has created something that is not good. What is not good is the incompleted state of creation. Should have given him a dog. <laughs> he should not have given him a dog. <laughs> he offered him a dog and Adam wouldn't take it. That's the point of the passage. Okay. God looks and he says, it is not good. This state is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. So I will make a helper suitable or corresponding to him. The idea there is correspondence. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that word helper is not a demeaning term. It is used 19 times in the Old Testament. 16 of those times it's used to refer to God. So if we look at the word helper and we think, well, that makes the woman lower than man, then every time the scripture refers to God as my helper, it makes him lower than me. It is not a demeaning term. It is a glorious term. It's a powerful term. It's a wonderful term. And it's a, and it's a position that God Himself freely and gladly and repeatedly takes in relationship to us. He is our helper. And God says, man needs a helper. But He needs more than a helper in the form of God. He needs a helper that corresponds to Him. He needs something, someone, some creature that, that corresponds, that is suitable to him. Now, God sees this, but Adam is only a few hours old at this point, right? Adam is clueless to his aloneness. He doesn't know. He doesn't realize yet that God has created him this marvelous relational social creature. He doesn't realize it. You know, he's relating to God. But aside from that, he doesn't realize this dimension. That's he doesn't know anybody else. He doesn't know anybody else. That's right. So he doesn't realize that he's alone. I want you to notice that it says that God said, it is not good for man to be alone. In what verse is that? Verse uh, uh, 18. Then what does he start talking about in verse 19? And the verses that follow. Okay, the whole issue of the naming of the beast comes in, and then he comes back to the story about making the helper suitable. Right? So, 
He had a dog already. That's right. <laughs> exactly right. I told you, he brought in a dog and Adam turned it down and I'm going to prove it to you. I'm going to prove it to you right here. Okay. The point, pardon? You should have just taken the dog. So. Charles gets a ghost So, the point is that the whole thing, the reason that God brings the animals to Adam at this point and has Adam name them is what? What is, why, does, why does God go, okay, I'm going to make a, I'm going to help, make a helper for Adam here, but before I do this, let's do this other job first and name all the animals. Why does he do that? Adam has to see them. exactly right. Adam has to know how desperately he needs a helper suitable. And so God brings to Adam all these creatures that he's made. You know, and this is where Bob Dylan comes in. <laughs> and man gives names to all the animals. Okay? Now, I'm not going to go into... We're not going to take time today to explain all this and how all this works. I don't think he named every breed of dog and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay? But, but clearly, clearly, man is presented with this wide array of created creatures. The birds, the cattle, the beasts... He's presented with these. And he names them. He looks at them, and in the remarkable, astonishing wisdom that was man's intelligence before the fall, he is able to look at a creature and discern its nature and assign it a name. And it tells us several things about Adam. It tells us, one, about the remarkable intelligence that mankind had before the fall. It also makes it very clear that mankind, at the very outset, on day one of human life, day six of creation, that mankind had linguistic capability. Actually, some think it was Hebrew, <laughs> and I have no idea what it was, but he had linguistic capability and the capability to reason. Okay. And he, using this linguistic capability and the capability of reason, he exercises his first right of dominion, which is to name. What's the first thing you did with your kids when they were born? You name them. You name them. It's the, it, it is, from antiquity, an evidence, an emblem, an implication of authority. When I give a name, I have authority. Okay? And so man is exercising his dominion over the creatures by giving them names. And whatever he named them, that was its name. That's what God called it from that on out. From that on out. It's whatever man called it. That's what God called it. Okay. That was its name. But what? He goes through this whole process and he says, uh, verse 20, Then man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but what? For Adam, there was not found a helper that was suitable. And Adam now has come to the realization of how desperately alone he is. He is absolutely desperately alone. And now he knows it. He's looked at all these other creatures and there's not one out there that he can share his heart with. There's not a one out there that can help him multiply and fill the earth and take dominion and subdue it. There's not one out there that can help him fight against the evil 
that he is to learn about from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There's not a one out there. And it's only then that God causes Adam to sleep and he goes to sleep and God takes from his side, takes from his side a rib and some commentators suggest that with the rib he also took some attendant flesh which is the reason they believe for the, for the reference to the closing up of the flesh there and also uh, for Adam's remark a moment later. Okay. And then God fashions from this rib that is actually a part of Adam's body a woman. And then what does God do? He presents her to Adam. You know, it's it's easy to it's easy to get carried away at this point and kind of laugh about all this, but but I'm telling you, if you think that it was awesome when God put Adam in the garden and presented the garden to Adam. Can you imagine what it was like to Adam after having named all these animals to be standing there just awake from sleep and God comes to him escorting to him this helper who corresponds And I, you know, I, it's hard for me to imagine the pleasure, the joy, the awe that Adam felt, now keenly aware of his aloneness, when God comes and presents to him this woman. Now, in our fallen state, you know, I don't know about you women, but for us guys, it's pretty easy for us to focus on, he brings me a naked lady, you know. Okay, well, that's there. I have no doubt that was there. But I think Adam's reacting to a whole lot more than that. This woman corresponds to me. And she is my helper and this massive responsibility I have to multiply and fill the earth and and take dominion and subdue it. This massive job that's just totally beyond me. I now have a helper. And she fits me. She's suitable to me. She corresponds to me. In every way, she corresponds. I didn't say in every way she's like me. I said in every way she corresponds. And I've been thinking about this the last couple of days, and I'll tell you, on September 2nd, 1973, God gave me a helper that was suitable for me. And she's, she's fallen. But so am I. And if I could only be filled with just a little of the awe. If I could just be filled with a little of the marvel. Just a little that Adam must have felt. I would probably treat her differently. And I cannot imagine how profoundly Adam was moved 
by God's love. I mean, to stand there and see His God, His Creator, this awesome, majestic Creator, so attendant to His individual, personal needs in the middle of this massive creation of the heavens and the earth. That He takes time and attention and He focuses on this one man and brings to Him one woman and makes them of the same flesh and bone. And Adam is overwhelmed. And he says, this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I've seen all this other stuff. I've named all this other stuff. I've analyzed it. I've you know, I've appraised it. I've assigned a name to it. I've taken dominion. But this now is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then what does he do? He names her. He calls her woman. Later, after the fall, he'll call her Eve. But he calls her woman. He names her. What's he doing? He's exercising authority. Eve doesn't come up to the deal and go, well, I'm glad to meet you, Adam. Let me introduce myself. My name is... She doesn't do that, does she? She waits until Adam responds. And Adam gives her this glorious name of woman. Because she's taken it. And for this reason... Moses then inserts this comment. A man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. It's the only institution that predates the fall. The husband and wife, the family. And the man and his wife were both naked and there was no shame. There was no guilt. There was nothing to hide. There was nothing to conceal. Later, when the word, when we, we run across the word naked again in chapter 3, it's a different word. And it's a word that's associated with judgment oftentimes in Scripture. But here, it is not. Man and kind, man and woman, joined together, perfectly corresponding. The very first wedding ceremony. Okay? Next week we'll go on and things will turn ugly. <laughs>